Okay, uh, so this episode of Podchad Yitzchak uh, has Arya Bernstein, with Arya Bernstein, on the uh, podcast uh, to teach us uh, Mamar Tet of uh, Shabbos. Uh, shamefully, I said Shabbat before. Uh, teaching in a Jewish day school has uh, taken away my Ashkenazi accent. It's terrible. I hate it. Uh Rabbi Arya Bernstein, I think he'll tell you more about what he does. Um, I encountered him probably for the first time when I was reading uh, eulogies of Ravavaji Yosef. And I was like, I'm not sure if anybody gets it. Uh, you know, nobody's got the personality. And then you wrote a eulogy quoting uh, a number of rap songs. I don't remember exactly which ones. I think... Uh, I think Tupac was quoted, and I was just like, okay, this guy gets it. Yeah, this Arya Birdson character, gotta pay attention to him. And it's been fruitful. Uh, Thank you. My favorite followers. But but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is a dude who gets it. Uh, So, Rev Birdstein, tell us about uh, what you do, and uh, what attracted you to this mamar in particular. Fantastic. Well, first of all, it's uh, it's great to be here, and I'll just say for the benefit of our listeners and Hagdalat v'Hadarat Torah Ba'olam Akiva and I have known of each other for many years through mutual friends and seeing each other on other mutual friends' Facebook walls, and then finally. I made a rare exception. Usually I don't become Facebook friends with people I've never actually met in person. But at a certain point, I was like, we've been in enough Torah conversations on Rabbi Tali Adler's wall and other people, always rich Torah, always interesting ideas. Mental we were process both talking mental. about the Pachadit a lot. We were both interested yeah. in um, um, values underpinning halacha. We're both... Um, disciples of professor Yaakov Elman at, at YU yeah. and I was like yeah we're friends I can be friends with this guy and uh, it's been a really um it, it, uh, my I would say that my connection with you through learning is um in adv- a voice in advocacy of of online relationship building there's a lot of negatives to it but positively yeah. like going into, yeah, into it. so it's really uh, nice to be connecting now yeah, it's funny because the uh, the process that you described of like this, I don't know this guy in person and I don't know where he goes, uh, but his online presence at school uh, is how I met my wife. Uh, so it's, it's this has been working for me for forever. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, okay, so Mama Tet. Uh, so yeah, Shabbos. so I, um, I'll say a little bit about myself. Um, Are you Bernstein? I am calling in from the southwest coast of Lake Michigan. Um, the traditional homeland of the Council of Three Fires, the Potawatomi, uh, Ojibwe, and Odawa nations, and other nations here in what is known as Chicago today, which is um, where my home is. And um, um, I, the main thing I do professionally is that I direct a justice fellowship here in Chicago for the Avodah Organization, a Jewish social justice uh, educational organization, and I'm kind of uh, located in other ways in the Jewish social justice community organizing Torah education ecosystem. Um, and um, sort of got to this place through an eclectic um, background in terms of the Jewish um, organizational map. Um, and I'll just, you know, to honor, since we're 
talking about the Torah of Rav Yitzchak Kutner, and we're both people who are not in a um, direct, not so much in a direct like organizational yeah, yeah. lineage, but have both been influenced by the Pachad Yitzchak as a literary work. I'll just give honor to uh, Rabbi David Ebner, who um, was the first person whom I heard teach Pachad Yitzchak ideas many years ago when I was at Yeshivat HaMiftar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, around the time when I was 25 and I moved to Ma'ale Gilboa, it was one of my goals for the year to like learn a little bit of Pachad Yitzchak and heard enough interesting things, see if it was good. Yeah. Well, turns out that Moriva yeah. Rabbi, Rabbi David Bigman um, was uh, turned out really into the Pachad Yitzchak and we learned together. I learned with the Alf guy did a lot of learning on my own and just to like locate this a little more um the summer after that i was co-founding a kolel for college students at camp ramon wisconsin and building out this learning program and um my friend and colleague rabbi josh Kahan and i decided for the machshev israel portion i would teach short once a week um and so, you know, it, would, it was inevitable it was going to happen anyway, but I think genealogically, I'm, I'm probably grounds like point one for introducing Pachet Yitzchak into like the Torah Egal, Halachic Egal ecosystem um, yeah. in 2001. Um, some of the people from that, those early years of the Kolel are now wonderful um, teachers greater than I. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I've noticed that there's, there, it's coming back somewhere. Uh, like at, all of a sudden there was a lot of people uh, who wouldn't have been allowed in Chaim Berlin who were learning uh, and I was uh, just a guy who had discovered it in my yeshiva library. And yeah. I was like, Hey, welcome guys. Uh, you know, I don't know if it was before me or, uh, but like, or whether I had gotten closer to that space, but it was, it was cool to see. It's always cool to see people who are into things that they shouldn't be into, Uh, (laughs) whether it's, you know, uh, Volusian Bahram learning uh, Kropotkin or, uh, you know, Egal people learning Pachat Yitzchak. It's, it's always fun. So and that was, I think, one of the things that, that drew me to the Pachat Yitzchak was that I think a lot of what we were doing in the, and continue to be doing in the Halachic Egal ecosystem is um, rebelling against a notion that is common in a lot of liberal Judaism that um, like tradition and change as like are, are these like binary poles and sometimes mm-hmm. you one and sometimes the other and a bunch of us were feeling like no i i and what i'm doing are continuous with the Masorah. and yeah. one of the things that's appealing about the pachad yisrach as a literary work um rav Huttner as a person was as far as I've, her story is actually pretty problematic but as a literary work the he, pachad yisrach uh, what appealed my grandfather to me, sorry he told my grandfather to uh, uh, held by uh, grandmothers in a guna for six years. Yeah, that uh, was one of the anecdotes that I was referring yeah. to. There's a picture, like uh, there's a picture of me uh, uh, when I just learned that when I uh, asked my grand, 
asked my grandfather to tell me a good Riff Hunter story. And he told me that story. And there's a picture of me like taken one minute after that. And like, imagine me yeah. like learning about and then he tells me this, whatever, get back to what you were saying. Yeah. 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 And just generally like his authoritarianism, like he's yeah. deciding who complicated dudes and who doesn't. So it was never about him. Um, but as a literary work, um, something that appeals to me about it in its artistic form is taking the style of a litvish uh, gemarashir of like yeah. raising a kushia, raising a difficulty in a text, then jumping to like an apparently unrelated text and then knocking a, 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 over a bunch of dominoes to like finally wind your way back. Along the way, dropping some very interesting chidushim for people who really know how to pay attention, some uh, know how to pay attention, some like novel ideas, some potential mm -hmm. conceptual jumps, um, but learning how to um, not to hide them, but to weave them into the tapestry. Yeah. It's something that grows Torah. Um, and Zerav Hutner is applying that artistic form to the conceptual framework and thereby incorporating um, ideas from uh, corpora, corpora of literature that were not um, yeah. typical, like in the Lippish uh, world, including Kabbalah and Hasidut, including Rav Kook, and including, you know, Heidegger, the Nazi, yep. and Wittgenstein, and Hermann Cohen, and so on, and incorporating them in. Now, I think there's a case to be made that it's problematic that he doesn't cite his sources in yeah. the ways that other of his contemporaries like Rav Soloveitchik and Ivan Joshua Heschel do. Um, but there's also, I think there is something problematic because he can't trace his work, but there's also something elegant. Um, you know, the Torah doesn't always cite its sources either. Yeah. And um, there's something elegant about this kind of expansion of an ever radiant uh, work that constantly it, it 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 validates that the Torah is eternally pregnant, and all yeah. of these ideas are ready to be unpacked and translated. And that's I, really the, appealing to me. Like the way I like to put it is that Rav Hunter uses Torah and uh, you know the, the tradition before him both as a foundation and also as a mask. Uh, yes. He likes to put it in front of you and hide behind it, and he he wants you to find him. Yeah, uh, and it's also that he combine like. He was, he he needed to create a new form of Torah delivery in order for all this to exist. Yeah, and the uh, wonder, the amazing thing about it is that it's both very new and very continuous, which is exactly how I feel about yeah the religious ecosystem of which I'm an active part. We call it the you know both the aspect of like. The religious feminism, halachic egal stuff, and also the social justice Torah. Yeah, you know, like, like capitalist world. We'll get to the mamar in a second, but this is an interesting conversation because one thing I see, you know, people to the left of me not quite grasp is the importance of having a uh, large religious vocabulary, of being able to yeah. phrase your ideas in ways that are continuous with the tradition. And yeah. Rafutner is as good as anyone at yeah. being able to find his find ways to express his own ideas 
uh, in ways that seem old. Uh, yeah. New ideas in ways that seem old, Absolutely. which is like the oldest kind of, uh, you know, Jewish trick uh, going back to Chazal. Absolutely. Uh, and that's that's what really, uh, really appeals to me about him. And I think made him catch on in why he's been so beloved in what is not he why his work has been so yeah. beloved in the ecosystem that I'm a part of and that you're uh, adjacent to over adjacent to a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's how um, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's been really exciting to see like those of us who are border crossers, um, yeah. you and I, Raftali, like other friends of ours who are border crossers, like been able to expand, um, expand things in other ways. Okay. So, so this Mamar in particular, okay, it's a short yeah. one. Uh, it's a short one. That's one of the reasons why I think it's good for this podcast. It allows True. us do a whole Mamar and talk about it with some depth. Um, it's also one I've taught a lot, but I think this one is is paradigmatic in a certain way of the things we were talking about in that on, on one level, he's giving us or he's exposing us to an interesting chiddish, like innovation or just a sweet idea about how to understand Shabbat. And its relationship to other mm -hmm. holidays and enrich our relationship with Shabbat, which is, of course, central and foundational in Jewish life. Yeah. But along the way, he's really talking about fundamentally our relationship with Torah and how we interact with Torah. What's what's happening phenomenologically when we learn? What he's really talking about here is what we are doing when we're learning, and it's a very thick we that I'm using there. What Akiva Weisinger, Arya Bernstein, as particular people who live now, today, what mm -hmm. we are doing and creating in the world when we learn, not just as receptive um, vessels, but as creators. And, um, and I think this, uh, this is a good example of some of the um, very creative thinking that can happen sometimes in uh, pockets of the Haredi world that get um, drowned under a lot of the authoritarian yeah. um, social culture, but there's sometimes more creativity can have room to happen within those boundaries than can happen outside. And I think it's also healthy for those who are outside of that to have a more complex world. So yeah. that's all introduction. Let's jump into it. Okay. So I'm not gonna read the entire thing in the Hebrew. I'll, I'll Kind of walk us through it, and I'll focus on some key passages in the Hebrew. Okay. Um, so he starts out by saying that the relationship between the sanctity of Shabbos to the sanctity of the other holidays is the relationship of a beginning and its continuation. That's his opening statement. Yachas kedushat Shabbat lekedushat shara'zmanim ukederach shahatchala mityacheset el hamsheich. And he explains that this is the character of Shabbat, which is called Tchila uh, Lemikra Kodesh, which is a phrase in Kiddush. Mm -hmm. so, um, it's the first of the holy days. Now, there's a very, so far, that seems pretty obvious. Shabbat was literally the seventh day of all creation. Pesach doesn't come until, you know, many, 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 many generations later and all the holidays that follow it. So Shabbat is kind of chrono chronologically, historically, First, and so that's its relation. If we're understanding the Moadim, the sacred days, Shabbat is the first, and all others continue out of Shabbat. 
So he says, since this is so regarding the content of the sanctity of Shabbat and the festivals, Kedushat Shabbat Zemozim, it follows that also the order of the sections of the Torah matches this. And every time that the sacred times, Mikra Kodesh, are described in the Torah, Shabbat comes first. It's a funny every time, aren't that many times. But if you look in Parshat Emor, Parshat Pinchas, the main times with the Torah readings for, uh, for the Chagim, um, then first is Shabbat, then following Pesach and, and the other day. Yeah, I, I, I haven't done this mamar before, but I just hearing this idea, I'm like, he's going to go some places with this, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. definitely. I think this mamar is paralleled in another volume, but I don't remember which one. Yeah. Um, as happens a lot. You're okay. also into the uh, noticing the parallel uh, mamarim and how yeah. they yeah yeah direct so okay um so Keep the going. exception to this rule this rule that generally when mikra Kodesh, when moadim when holidays are listed shabbos is listed first the exception to this rule is chapter 34 in shemot parsha kitisa which at the time of this recording is coming up very soon in a week and oh, a half check that uh, out yeah check that parsha ah. is always relevant always on time hey um, so the exception the to books. this rule is in uh, chapter thirty-four, so that is the end of uh, the end of Kitisa. Um, after the golden calf, there you know there's this halting conversation between Moshe and God about restoring a relationship. God's first like, no, you know, I'll just send an angel. I can't deal. And Moshe kind of coaxes God back and restores the relationship, and and then. Um, God gives the uh, gives the, the the holidays again. The end of chapter thirty four. That chapter, by the way, I'll just for foreshadowing, I'll drop that that chapter thirty four begins by Yomer Adonai Moshe. So lechashnei luchot avanim tarishonim v'chatavti al luchot etadvarim asharayu al luchot tarishonim shoshibarta. God says to Moshe, "You carve yourself out two stone tablets like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on." The first ones, which you broke. Um, that is one of Raputner's favorite psukim that he has several um, yeah. powerhouse mamarim unpacking different aspects and different midrashim about that pasuk. Yeah. Um, it's a, a powerful pasuk that which we read every fast day. Um, but in any event, it's that's the beginning. God saying, "Yes, it's not over. You can get another set of the tablets." And that the chapter reaches a kind of denouement at the toward the end with God saying like and this, you'll get the holidays too in that chapter all the festivals appear in order says Rehutner, except that Shabbat is mentioned between Pesach and Shavuot which is surprising in uh, so in that place if you look at um, uh, verse 17 verse 18 rather of chapter 34 so the festival of Matzot, you should guard seven days, eat Matzot, which like I commanded you for the festival on the new month of springtime, from the month of springtime you left Egypt. And then it goes on to say the, the rules of uh, redeeming firstborn um, of animals. Yep. Um, and then, and then verse 21, six days you should serve work. And on the seventh day, Shabbos, uh, rest from cease work from 
harvesting, and then continues yeah. So that's weird. It's strange, especially so, when Parsha Mishpatim, which is like a, I did Parsha Mishpatim is by Berbens so Parsha, which is very useful. Uh, so Parsha Mishpatim has pretty much the same text, but uh, uh, Shabbos is before that. So yeah. it's like directly parallel. Yeah, and, we expect yeah. Shabbos to come first. It is. For, and why in this case? So he's beginning like any good Lithuanian Rosh Hashiva in a Gemara Shir or a Rambam Shir or something, beginning with a simple, familiar text and a Kushia, a difficulty. Why is the expected and familiar order reversed in this passage? And he says here, see the Ramban's comments on the Torah there. Now, I've seen the Ramban's comments on the Torah there. Mm-hmm. The Ramban, I'll, we're not going to go deeply into the Ramban here, though perhaps that's a mistake. But um, for time purposes, I'll say the Ramban yeah. just points out, he notices the difference. And he says the reason for it is because all three of these are the mofates, are signs and wonders of Maseh Breshi, the creation. He doesn't really explain in what way Pesach and Shavuot are on this place. But he says, see my comments in the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Shemot, where I go at depth. Now, that is one of his longest comments in the entire Torah. And mm-hmm. he doesn't tell you exactly where. So we're not going to get into it. Yeah. Rav Huttner says, see the Ramban. So I just want to note that for our yeah. listeners. Balabatishli could be just saying, like, look, the Ramban asked this question too. Uh, it could but be. It's it Rav Huttner. So it could yeah, be so probably a not. lot of different things. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll, I'll share a little anecdote that is uh, important for us, and that'll be a good introduction to section two, um, okay. which is that I once asked our teacher, Professor Elman, Yaakov Elman, yep. who I, I was a graduate student in Talmud. So yeah. you know, I wasn't doing like this kind of like work with him. But, uh, yeah, you had him a lot more than I did. Talmud. I had him for two classes. Uh, I just but, enjoyed him a lot. So I asked Professor Elman after class, I said, in your experience, was Rav Huttner aware that he was using the Maharal of Prague's text for very different purposes than the Maharal was? Well, that's an interesting himself. question. Thank you. Rav, Professor, it was one of my proudest moments. Professor Elman stopped, looked at me with a big grin on his face. He looked at me at eye contact. He said, what a question. And yeah, that's said, good. And he said, Aryeh, in my experience, the Rosh Hashiva was always aware of everything he was yeah. doing. So he, we're about, to, we're about to cite the Maharal. And I'll just encourage you, people who are you know, in the world of Jewish thought, go back and read the Maharal in context. And um, if you're not liberating the Maharal from his context, yeah, Maharal is just like straight in line doing like Neoplatonist rabbinic yeah. thought, you know, put into biblical theology. But um, um, and I I, I asked, I forget if it was Professor Elman, Professor Alan Brill, like why uh, Rav Huttner cites Maharal so much, given that he's not actually interested in what Maharal is doing. He's not interested in Neoplatonist yeah. thought at all. And Seems like I sort think, of a kindred spirit kind of thing. I, so I don't think that's right, actually. Okay. I think it has nothing to do with spirit. I think it's actually um, instrumental, which is that he's trying to expand the idea canon mm-hmm. of Litfish 
yeah. Judaism. And Maharal, Maharal the richest vocabulary. Wait, people weren't reading his books, but he is he did also write comments on Yoridea and is cited yeah. like in the Pitrechuva and stuff. So his So name, he's got like standing. his name is in the discourse. So yeah. you can cite something from works that aren't so often read. It's similar to like he's really into citing in the Rosh Hashanah volume, um, Shari mm-hmm. of Rabbeinu Yonah. Maybe not the yeah. most often studied, but Rabbeinu Yonah, his comments on Masach and Brachot and other Masach are regularly cited. So if he has an opportunity to expand the canon, um, whereas like, um, you know, if he's if he's citing Rav Tzadik of Lublin, which is what he's usually doing, yeah. but... He but never that's does, not a name usually, or a yeah. book that's on the canon. So I Maharal remember I was Bach, so he, he Maharal is useful because Maharal can you can take his ideas out his words out of context to like use them yeah. as vessels through which to expand. So you're through. saying the Maharal he, he picks a Maharal because it's uh, the richest vi- uh, religious vocabulary that he can find. It's a, that... it's a, it's a, it's a motorcycle through which he can ride where he wants to go. And yeah, I think like, and the place he's going might be more Wittgenstein or, yeah. um, or Husserl or something, but. Um, but yeah. Like I remember motorcycle. when someone pointed out to me that he never actually quotes any Hasidic sources. I was like, no, right. that can't be. Yeah. That's 100%. And then I looked at the indexes and like, he never right. quotes Rotsedek? Right. It's... Now, of course, he's quoting Rotsedek probably more than anybody else, as far yeah. as people who know more than I have told me. But he will never cite Rotsedek on the Lublin, never the Sfas MS, never um, yeah. anybody else. And it's certainly not Rav Cook, who he's also, you know, translating. It gets complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so in any event, so let's let's pick up the pace. So section two, um, section bet, bays. Yep. Um, it seems fit to interpret this problem, why the holidays are out of order in Kitisa, um, chapter 34, after the Sarda Zebra, uh, rather after the, the golden calf. It seems fit to interpret this on the basis of what the Maharal established in his book, the Tiferet Israel. And what the Maharal says is that the form of the book of Dvarim which is called the repetition of the Torah, Mishneh Torah. That's the rabbinic mm-hmm. name for, um, I mean, yeah. it's from Torah itself, but the way Chazal referred to the book of Devarim is Mishneh Torah, um, repetition of the Torah. The form of Devarim is closer to the form of Kabbalah Torah, reception of the Torah, than to that of the giving of the Torah. In other words, there's a genre difference between mm-hmm. the first four books of the Torah, which, as Maharal says, are closer to the form of the giving of the Torah, Matan Torah, to receiving the first four books literarily are in the literary conceit of kind of god's voice perspective the giving of the torah whereas devarim like is all a speech of moshe's yeah. like there isn't a lot of vaydaber hashem al moshe anymore because the whole book is moshe giving a lot yeah, of speech a lot of recapping and a lot of interesting theological stuff has been done with that uh another one of professor elbin's uh pieces yeah yeah so, um, so he quotes, uh, Rufutner quotes um, Maharal in the language of Maharal, Dvarim is closer to the side of the receiver than the rest of the Torah. And the way that when one gives an object to another person, the beginning of the object is in the hand of the giver, while the end of the object is in the hand of the receiver. And we see that Torah at this point is like Moshe up there kind of holding the Luchot 
saying here this 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 thing and lichora he's I mean whether he's speaking baal pet or reading a text that was inscribed already mm-hmm. is a little hard to say but I think at least literarily speaking you can imagine him reading from this text that's already been 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 given and that's the literary structure so far just an important observation genre wise but mm-hmm. no no big chiddush. Right. On the basis of this proposition, Maral continues to explain the linguistic differences between the Ten Commandments, the Sarah Dibro in Yitro, right. Exodus chapter 20, and the Sarah Dibro in Ve'etchanan, Deuteronomy Devarim chapter 5, explaining that the language in Ve'etchanan adds to those things that approach the perspective of the receiver. So let's stop. Now let's consider. Now we're actually getting into the text of Torah. And Maharal already is noticing, as many people notice, that the Aserta Dibrot in Shemot and in Devarim aren't like they, Devarim presents as being verbatim, a repetition of the Aserta Dibrot already given, and yet it's not. It mostly is, but there are a few differences. Most famously um, for the mitzvah of Shabbat, which is, of course, our topic here, the mitzvah of Shabbat is Zachor in Shemot, remember, and Shamor in Devarim, the Tanaim. Famously, Ariyavim Midrash, Zachor v'Shamor b'Dibur Echad Memru. They're right. said simultaneously. Was something that the human mouth couldn't say, but the divine, uh, divine speeches is um, is thick. Uh, it's like a hammer that shatters rocks. Uh, right. And that's why the divine speech can carry both of those things simultaneously. When God spoke, both of those were spoken simultaneously, and the ear could hear both. Um, something that humans couldn't do. And the reason for Shabbat also is different in Shemot. The reason is because God rested on the seventh day, and in Devarim, it says the reason for Shabbat is the, the remember that you were slaves in Egypt yeah, right. and shouldn't like that. Okay. And those are, this is, you know, classic, you know, earliest rabbinic wisdom in the Mechilta, cited in the Gemara, etc., that um, both of them were cited were said simultaneously. It's in our liturgy, the beginning of the Chazadi poem, Shamor Zachor Okay. So Maharal is just um, kind of classifying that in terms of this like giver, receiver yeah. aspect and saying that like the things that we, the, the language that is edited, they're all said simultaneously, but that is edited in Devarim are the things that like fit the perspective of the receiver okay um see so some Rav, exciting places to go with this okay yeah so Rav Huttner says so at, at first glance this reason suffices only with regard to the linguistic differences between Shmod and Devarim however says Rav Huttner aren't those same differences also found between the first and the second tablets it would seem that these differences existing between the tablets would contradict Maharal's explanation, since we see from this that the source of these differences is not in the difference of the form of Devarim from the other books. Let's give you a little taste of that in the Hebrew. Um, um, Right. 
ולוחות שניות, ולכאורה חילופים אלו שבין הלוחות סותרים הם את בירו של המהר"ל. שהרי רואים אנו מזה כי אין מקורם של החילופים הללו בהבדל בין צורתו של ספר דברים לצורתם של שער החומשים. I want to unpack this a little bit. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure I'm following all the way, so let's yeah, so uh, make sure. Yeah, that's right, I want to unpack. Maharal is pointing out that um, the content in Dvarim is uh, genre-wise is receiver of Torah side, so for, whereas the content in Shemot is mm. giver side. They're all said simultaneously. Um, right. That's a given. They don't even have to say that. But it's one is edited this place because you know Shemot, the reason for Shabbat is because God rested on the seventh day. So that's what the one that's edited in Shabbat, because in human writing you can't write them on top of each other. So we repeat it twice and have it in different places. Whereas the reason of like remembering slavery in Egypt mm-hmm. is is edited into Devarim, Kiviachol, mm-hmm. because that's the book that genre-wise is Moshe speaking from Moshe's perspective. So it's like okay. a whole genre thing. But Rav Huttner points out, wait a second, let's actually think about Sefer Devarim for a second. Remember back in the narrative of Sefer Shemot, the Aserah Dibrot are given, and then the people make golden calf. It's terrible. The worst thing that the Jewish people have ever done, at least until well debatable today but um um but the the worst thing the worst thing that Ben Israel has done so far in the time yeah <laughs> but but who knows um jury's still out so um and then after that in Shemot chapter 34 God authorizes Moshe to carve out a second tablet second mm-hmm. set of tablets so Rav Huttner suggests that Actually, the difference isn't between Sefer Shemot and Sefer Devarim. The difference is between the first set of tablets and the second set of tablets. Because whatever he's reading from in Devarim, those tablets have existed since chapter 34 of Shemot. So Maral, he says, nah, you can't say that these are like, the differences here are because of like the literary character of Devarim. These are actually Shemot Debrot. We just didn't read them until Devarim, but they're, the, the differences between Shemot chapter 20 and Shemot chapter 34, really. I and think so, I assumed that as a kid. I don't, yeah, I think yeah. I remember assuming that as a kid, like, oh, so they made a second t- uh, tablet. Those had, uh, 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 you know, Shemot. different language. Yeah. Now, already, this is potentially a significant thing to say because, you know, I, I, I set up for this to be a chiddush a little bit by repeating over and over again before that, like, yeah. It is uncontroversial that everything said in the in the, all the variations were said simultaneously. The Chazal view is against what you assumed as a kid. The Chazal view is that Shamor v'Zachor b'Dibur Echad Nemru, and I think it's dot dot dot. The rest of the differences between Yisrael yeah. Dibrot were all simultaneous. Like we hear it differently in Devarim. Is that how he would put it? Like, I think. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to speak for any other person. How I all okay. I have literary text and all how yeah. I, read. I think I think reading Chazal on this the way I read the Mechilta is that um, don't there's no like controversy that there are differences between the Sardar Dibrot and Shemot and Dvarin it's that um, they're all said simultaneous 
divine speech is thick and is able to right. contain multitudes, human language has limitations of expression. So if you think about it cinematically, so right. in, in cinema, if you're trying to depict two things happening simultaneously, you'll introduce a split screen and be right. able to show two things happening at the same time next to each other. On the written page, you can't do that. So yeah. some authors will, you know, one shifts perspective back and show things that are happening simultaneously or maybe alternate paragraphs or there might be other interesting graphic things you can do, but that's all kind of modern graphics. Classically, it's something you can't depict literarily. So what I think the Mechilta is saying there um, and the standard rabbinic view is that, um, is that it's the, the, the same Debrot but the, the, there's no way to, in, in human language, to, in human writing, to depict both the word Zachor and the word Shamor and both the reason of Masabreshit and the reason of Yitzhak Mitzrayim simultaneously. The is bigger so than you text. write them separately and you put one in one place and you put one in the other place and we know to read them all together. So there's like, the Torah is bigger than the text of the Torah. Yeah, yeah. Or okay. at least in this case of places where there are what seem to be contradictions or differences, and Chazal are saying it was um, yeah, that, simultaneous that a... and thick. When we read Shmot, we read Shmot with Dvarim in our mind also. When we read Dvarim, we read it with Shmot in our mind, not as contradictions, but as Shavmor v'zachor v'diburachai, yeah. the same way and... we do it in Kabbalah Shabbat. So Rav Hutner is already mm. doing something very slyly uh, risky, I think. Yeah. And radical at saying very in a very tamimistic way that actually there's a problem, there's a difference between these two uh, these two texts, and that we should locate them as one set of luchot said one thing, and the other mm -hmm. set of luchot said the other. Lichora, he's doing like a, a difficulty, a kushia on maharal. Maharal's right. claiming that this is just a genre thing of divarim, but really, I think. He's he's destabilizing a classic rabbinic yeah. uh, truism, which is meant to shut down ideas of uh, you know, any, so any nervousness like, about uh, textual. So uh, he's softening the blow, so to speak, by uh, by posing it as a question on, on the moral rather than on Chazal. Exactly. He never quotes okay. the midrash, but like everybody. I mean, anybody who's learned anything, learned a little bit, knows like Zachor Shamor. Yeah. And even any, not even a learning Jew, anyone who's gone to Kabbalat Shabbat, like, yeah. You know, even like my, one of my favorite reasons of teaching this text, even in circles that I'm in, a lot of people who don't have a lot of experience with Jewish texts, but a lot of them, you know, have been to, a, if there's a Jewish prayer that they've learned, the and like the first. Right. Uh, more of Zachor and they, oh yeah okay that I, I know this idea okay so so that's where we're at so far we've already introduced that there's a um, there's a texture of meaning mm -hmm. in the text of the Lucha, of the first set of Lucha and the second set of Lucha which already raises the possibility that there's something important happening in the event of shattering tablets and reconstructing them now we know that that's one of Rav Hutner, that's one of Pachad Yitzchak's most common yeah. tropes. 
Um, many other Mamarim deal with, um, you know, Reish Lakish's statement in Gemara Menachot. It was a good right. thing that Moshe broke the tablets. And um, in Hanukkah Gimel, which is another favorite Mamar Man, he talks about um, kind of the creativity that can happen through forgetfulness, like the loss right. of shattering the tablets, the loss through Moshe's death and the reconstruction through the Pilopulo of Neil Ben Kainaz. He like brings together some different Gemars very interestingly. Maybe another time, if I'm invited back, maybe we'll do that in Mamar Hanukkah Gimel. But meanwhile, here, um, he's already suggesting that there's meaning in the shattering and reconstruction of the, of the tablets. Also, I'll just say, I don't know the date of this Mamar. Presumably, it's like in the mid-50s sometime. Mm -hmm. um, seems like most of these are like from his heyday of like the 50s. Yeah. The, 50s. Um, the only one that I know a date for, Rav Simcha Kraus, all the Shalom, told me that Hanukkah, I believe it's Tet, was about Gentile wisdom, was given That's a good one. in response to uh, the Russians launching Sputnik. Um, so that's a nice little morsel. That's cool. Yeah. So, okay. So the uh, Pachayishak moves forward. Um, again, I'm trying to train myself to move from saying Rav Hutner to Pachayishak because I don't want to speak on behalf of Rav Hutner, the person who I don't have any like Masora to, but the literary work that I can try to read intelligently as I can. Um, it's interesting. So, I, might, I might do that. Pachayishak continues. Okay. Um, nevertheless, the truth of the matter is that the Maharal's words suffice even for the tablets. Because remember, his, his kushia, his difficulty was that like Maharal's like Devarim is about the receiver and the first four books are about the giver. And so the reason for Shabbos in the first four books is based on the giver's experience, God's experience of yeah. resting on the seventh day. And the experience in Devarim is the uh, the reason the, the the perspective of the receiver, Rufutner is like actually tomorrow is like wrong in that because like the second tablets aren't actually Devarim they're actually deferred Shmot, but he's right kinda because the very same relationship that exists between Devarim and the other books that very same relationship itself exists between the second tablets and the first tablets as well. Um, that uh, yeah the first tablets were passed to Moshe already written on both sides yeah, while the second tablets were written by Moshe right. one of the favorite things so it's quite clear uh, we find then that the participation of the receiver was involved much more in the second tablets than in the first. So it's quite clear that the level of the second tablets as compared to the first is precisely the same as the level of Devarim as compared mm -hmm. to the other parts of the Torah. That's why the place of the Ten Commandments in the second tablets is in Ve'et Hanan. That's why we, we defer the editing it to Devarim, which Maharaj is right. It's like a natural place because the second Luchot are all about the perspective of the receiver. So Devarim is like the place for that when Moshe is literally giving a whole speech. It's very obvious to the reader yeah. what's happening. The Torah wants us to get that clear, that something has shifted. It's not all God. Now there's like human work 
Yeah, I don't know if he's going to go with the, uh, here with this, but uh, it has been pointed out that Devarim is mostly about uh, human society and uh, building, uh, you know, a society within, you know, our our reality. Uh, uh, that seems to be important. Yeah, so uh, he, he doesn't go there, but I think that's part of what's kind of implied. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's implied for Maharal. Maharal is probably just a formal observation that this whole thing is like a speech of Moshe, whereas the first four have the omniscient yeah. person, author, um, narrator. Um, and, uh, um, but I think it's, there, it's, yeah, like a, like the, it's like the next stage of implication that like, once you're talking like you about see content. That Maharal, I don't think is that interested in content. But. Like you see that in the difference between, uh, you know, the reasons for Shabbat or Shabbos. Shabbos. Yeah. Keep my exactly, right. accent. Right. Exactly. That in in uh, which is you know our topic here. That in in uh, Shmos um, in uh, yes the first Asherah of Debros, it's yes um, uh, God resting, and the second time, um, which means it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the Jewish people. It's That's foundational tricky. to the cosmos. We just happen to be the ones listening and testifying at yeah uh, Sinai, whereas. The second perspective, it's really like a Shabbos is a Jewish issue, is a response yeah. to a particular issue of Bnei Israel, or and, maybe anybody else who has experienced. And it's uh, also, you know, a uh, something that affects human society that we rest to uh, make the point of a day of not conquering or not, you know, uh, action. I don't, yeah. That was going somewhere in my head. I don't know if that so, made so it. So let me okay. let me back up a little bit because what yeah. what Putner has said now he's subtly going back to our concept about how he subtly advances new ideas while while making it sound familiar, making it sound like yeah. something that all the the students have heard before. the The idea that there's a difference between the first luchot and the second luchot, um, and that there's human involvement more in the second ones. Um, that is like a, a Litvak yeshiva commonplace. Yeah. Um, so I want to share just some background texts that I think we can assume that the Bacharim at like Chaim Berlin and other people reading this immediately are, are calling up. So there's uh, Yersh Talmud Yerushalmi, also in Baikar Rabbah. It appears in a bunch of different places. Um, Mamar of uh, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. It's in Baikar Rabbah. 22 1 it's also in mm -hmm. uh yerushalmi peah uh chapter 2 halacha dollar so just if listeners want to look this up very famous mamar yishuvan levi says that like on in Dvarim chapter 10 um the midrash of kechol hadvarim and uh kol hamitzvah so he darshins hamitzvah it's like kol and kechol hadvarim mm -hmm. what that what all those subtle additions what those expansive terms about God's word and God's commandment, what they mean are that uh, Nikra, Mishnah, Halachot, Talmud, Tosefdot, Agadot, even what a veteran student in the future will say before one's rabbi. All of them were said uh, to Moshe at Sinai. Now, today, I feel like in popular usage, that Midrash is often used to kind of stamp out Chiddush yeah. as a way to like, you're only allowed to say things which are received. But um, 
I don't know its whole intellectual history. But my sense is that um, up until maybe the past century, um, the intellectual history of the reception of that mamar was really quite the opposite. That it's, yeah. it's an imprimatur for Kiddush that even that which a student who's really immersed, not any schnook, but like which a Tommy Batik, anyone who like is attentive will say has the imprimatur of Sinai. So the yeah, I think the like the 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 way that switches is once you've given every chiddush that's ever been said up to you uh, the same status as Misenai, yeah. Then you can't disagree with anybody who came before you. At some point, that switches. What what it becomes. Whereas here, I think it's like anything that you say. There's not a random thing. It's like a talmid batik, somebody who's really who's refined in learning anything that they say is part of it was given at Sinai because yeah. Sinai is this like very pregnant um um very uh a uh, uh, very fertile fecund um gift so the Netziv for example I'm just using this as like a, a classic example of Litvak yeah you don't get more Torah, Litvak Torah of like a generation or two before uh, Would you say Rav Chaim Brisker is more Litvak than the Nitziv? Don't don't forget uh, yeah. forget it. Uh, whatever. Yeah. So the Nitziv in uh, his his parish on the the, the Torah Hamek Davar. Um, yeah. so on our passage Shmot Lamedal v'Chatzati Al Luchot Et Dvarim. So he uh, first he um, writes approvingly of a Gaonic tradition that Ibn Ezra disses, but the Nitziv defends. That the second tablets are the Chubadim in Harishonim. They're actually more honored than the first. Ibn Ezra's okay. like, that's ridiculous. And the Nativ is like, no, that's actually true. And the point of this is that with the first tablets, the power of Chidush, innovation, wasn't given. Only what Moshe right. received. Close biblical readings, halachot that come out from there, but not to innovate a matter of halacha via the Yud Gimomizo, the 13 principles, and so on. The stuff of Talmud. So right. um, oral Torah was only what was received from Moshe and that the, were things that they could really just compare very literally. But with the second tablet, power is given to every Talmud Vatik. So he's right. reference to that Midrash uh, to innovate Halacha via the interpretive principles and Talmudic learning. Um, And And for that reason, Kadosh Baruch Hu commanded that the second tablets be carved out by Moshe. Not because he didn't merit a work of God. First ones are like written miraculously on both sides. Second ones, you have to carve out Rishonim. And it's like this right. odd thing, because the main thing we know about the Rishonim, about the first one, is that they were not carved out by Moshe. And here right. uh, it says, you know, God says, so lecha, and then I, God, v'chatzavti ala luchot. So the, the Nitziv, and it, you know, he wasn't the only one, but he just, I think, says it very elegantly. The Nitziv says that this teaches us um, that halacha is innovated through the power of those tablets, meaning participation the hard work of human beings with the help of heaven. So henceforth, after sin and repentance, um, 
humans are involved in through their sweat equity in the generation of Torah. Now, Nativ, that Rav Huttner talks as though he's just saying the same thing as in this. He didn't cite the Nativ by name. He could, sometimes he does, I think, but uh, but it's such a commonplace idea that I don't think he, yeah. he needs to necessarily. And he's just saying, you know, uh, the first, the same relationship. The first tablets were passed to Moshe, already written on both sides. The second tablets were chiseled by Moshe. And so the participation of the receiver was much more involved in the second tablets. So Moshe's perspective is much more in the second ones because Psolacha. So now, now we have a sense of how the Talmudim might be hearing it in light of this Nasiv. Oh, yeah, because Psolacha, that means henceforth, learning isn't just passive. Learning has to, we have to sweat it out. We have to really work hard to learn and therefore we're partners. Right. Now, he's about to very subtly move things forward. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Um, section four of the Ma'amar. And listen carefully because you might miss it. It's going to go by so quickly. Okay. Now, one of the variations between Yitro and Ve'etchanan, the first version of the Ten Commandments and Exodus and the second in Deuteronomy, isn't the commandment regarding Shabbos, such that in Yitro, the source of Shabbos is said to be creation, while in Ve'etchanan, the source of Shabbat, is said to be the redemption from Egypt. We've talked about that ad nauseum already. Yeah. This variation is explained according to Maharal's supposition. The Shabbat of creation is closer to the form of giving the Torah because the giver of the Torah is the one who rested on the seventh day, whereas the Shabbat of redemption from Egypt is closer to the form of the reception of the Torah because the receivers of the Torah are they who were redeemed from Egypt. Now, I want to stop there for a second because the Nitziv never applied what he was saying to any content. The Nitzi mm-hmm. was speaking more about affect, that prior to Cheta Egel, learning is passive and receptive. God mm-hmm. in this like dominant way, and we receive everything and with right. observe it. And after Cheta Egel and Tshuva, after the golden calf and repentance, Solacha as a symbol, that's just by watching Moshe, by knowing that Moshe had to do this work, that symbolizes that we all have to work in learning and not be right. receptive. And we as students have to learn that we can't be passive and just do what our Rebbe tells us. We have to be... So Moshe that, acts as a exemplar rather than a actual, like, showing that there is actual contribution. So it's an exemplar to show us like what learning is about henceforth. Like yeah. Moshe has to model it for us. And what it means for you and me, as I know you probably love telling your students, like, you know, don't just parrot what I say. Maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm right for me. Like you I, have to be involved. You have to. I give them extra credit points when they prove me wrong. Yeah, uh, so that's fun. you're you're following the Nitziv on that. You're following yeah. what the Torah is after it's, uh, it's as as yeah. Litvish tradition, the tradition of Chiddush, the tradition of the Nitziv. Yeah, it has psolacha, and that teaches us that we all have to be involved in like broadening Torah. It's very it's it's about our the idea has been about our mode. Rav Huttner right. has very subtly extended it to explain content. And so I want to stop and understand, like, what does he really mean by this? If he's saying that that same difference, the reason why um, Shabbos is about imitating God in Masa Breshi in Shemot, because God totally is speaking objectively there, 
And in Devarim, the reason why Shabbos is about remembering the experience of slavery is because Moshe is involved in Psolacha. Moshe is carving it out. And so, of course, it comes out from the human perspective. That's a pretty radical that's, wild. Yeah, that's uh, that's. So I want like, little... how do we how do we imagine this? Is Moshe up there being like, okay, all right, so I'm gonna start over from scratch. Okay, the first word is Breshit. That's Bet Resh Alish. Next word Bara Bet Resh, and then you finally get to the Sarah Zebrot, and it's like, um, you know, God says, okay, I'm gonna redictation. Re it's Kishesha uh, Yamim Asad and I, and Moshe's like, I don't think so. I think we're going to have to do a reform here and actually. Yeah, like, that gets into the uh, current territory. Yeah, so it's very hard to imagine. Like, what, like in the Nitziv, we can understand what it, what it means. It's he's working in the, in the, in the mode of, of affect that we have to work for it. God wants yeah. our, our sweat um, and our, and our, and not, and our, and our, and our activity. Rav Huttner seems to be saying something else that actually, once we're involved in a psolacha, that, that necessarily will shape the content of Torah. And then, so let me see if I understand this. So the Nitzvah is saying the uh, like psolacha and what a uh, a student does is discover Torah, discover, yeah. right? Uh, according to Refutner, what uh, what that means is not that you discover Torah, is that you create it. Yeah, and and I, you know, I wonder if there's a way to like to muddy the binary between that and say yeah. that, like there's a kind of discovery. I think what he's more saying is that is that discovery has to um, be a light that shines through the prism of our own experience. Yeah. Now, on a literal level, this can be very easily uh, disputed because the you know Rav Huttner is like psolacha, psolacha, psolacha. See, Moshe was writing the second version, and so of course it's his perspective. But that's not true. It's psolacha shnei luchot avanim karishanim bechatavti al luchot. God yeah. says you. You cut the paper. You you know chisel out the stones, and I will write. I'll inscribe them. I be the same. And and uh, uh, the Pachad Yitzchak really kind of glosses over that second half of the pasuk here, and implies that this psolacha is really thick. And it means that once Moshe is involved, without explaining the mechanics of it, because to do so would be heretical, um, without delving into the mechanics, the content of Torah refracts differently. Right. And this, this and is a big once, finish when you're, you're saying about... a person, God, maybe it, if, if something, if, if you could even say such a thing, God yeah. maybe never even intended, didn't even see a connection between Shabbos and I'm just going to move away when the lightning strikes. Exactly. Uh, right. Shabbos yeah. historically already existed long before Mitzrayim, just in Maseh right. But then if you're telling that commandment to people who just seven weeks ago came out of 210 years of slavery, the experience of being told 
rest every seventh day in their hearing is going to refract differently. Yeah. That's going to be the experience. And so he's really talking about the reader as author. Once yeah. you read something, inevitably, the idea is going to refract through the prism of your experience. So you just made a shift there of between Moshe to the audience, right? right. Of the audience is receiving it differently. So I what think, I was... I, yeah, I think, I think Rav Huttner is using Moshe as a stand-in for us as learners, for all of us who are engaged in learning Torah. Because otherwise that would be like an even bigger chiddush than it appears at first because Moshe is the only prophet that you can't say that about, right? He's the only one who is not seeing it through, you know, chidot and, uh, you know, riddles. He's the only one who's getting the clear picture. And then to say that like, but he is also adjusting it through his perspective. That's right. even like, that's heretical yeah. on top of heretical in some yeah. ways. And so I think, you know, Moshe is a stand-in, as he's been for, you know, for Chazal also, Moshe Rabbeinu, like turning him yeah. into like the great rabbi. And and also as a, for Pachadzik here as a student, the the paradigmatic receiver of Torah. What is it, what does Kabbalah's Torah actually mean? What does it mean to receive Torah and anytime we're nervous, like, am I getting this right? Well, it, it's in, it's necessarily refracting through your experience. Torah in Brooklyn has to look different than Torah in Belezhen because they're different places and they're different times. And Torah in Brooklyn in 1955 yeah. is going to be different than Torah in ni- Brooklyn in 1985. And Torah in Brooklyn in 1955 for this student in this experience at this moment is going to be different than for that student in, in a different moment. I want to help unpack this. I want to share um, a passage that I always teach alongside this mamar, a passage from uh, the Latin American uh, magical realist author, Jorge Luis Borges, who is like remarkably not Jewish. This is a uh, story. Yeah, uh, fiction. Uh, I haven't read him at all, but I hear him quoted in a lot of Shirim, uh, which oh, man. may... Akiva, how can you not have read Borges? So He's... I will tell you, Rabbi Clapper, previous guest on this podcast, uh, sent me, he wrote like uh, uh Torah that was like in the style of Borges. And he sent it to me and was like, I think you'd appreciate this. And I said, why? Uh, uh, why? And he said, no, I th- just think that this is the kind of thing that you'd be into. And I like, I didn't have the, the heart to tell him I hadn't read Borges. Well, I, uh, what sorry a wonderful to break your heart, thing. Rabbi Clapper. What a listening. wonderful thing that you still have the opportunity to have the experience of wonderment. Okay, Borges. fair I enough. Encourage yes. you, I encourage you to do that. So there is um, one of his fictions uh, collected in the Labyrinths, which is a collection of his writings and others, a yeah. 1939 fiction um, called Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote. So the, he writes as a journalist, Borges does, describing this fictional character, Pierre Menard, who set out to write Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. So he explains what he means. He did not want to compose another Quixote, which is easy, but the Quixote itself. Needless to say, he never contemplated a mechanical transcription of the original. He did not mm-hmm. propose to copy it. His admirable intention was to produce a few pages which would coincide word for word and line for line with those of Miguel de Cervantes. The first method, I'm skipping a little, the first method he conceived was relatively simple. 
know Spanish well, recover the Catholic faith, fight against the Moors or the Turk, forget the history of Europe between the years 1602 and 1918, B, Miguel de Cervantes. Pierre Menard studied this procedure. I know he attained a fairly accurate command of 17th century Spanish, but discarded is too easy. Yeah, this rather, is that kind of thing. Yeah. Rather, rather impossible, my reader will say. You can never become the author. Yeah. Granted, but the undertaking was impossible from the very beginning, and of all the impossible ways of carrying it out, this was the least interesting. Snap against textual criticism. Um, to be in the 20th century, a popular novelist of the 17th seemed to him a diminution. To be in some way Cervantes and reach the Quixote seemed less arduous to him, and consequently less interesting than to go on being Pierre Maynard and reach the Quixote through the experiences of Pierre Maynard. Quoting Maynard, my understanding is not difficult, essentially. I should only have to be immortal to carry it out. So Borges, the narrator continues, shall I confess that I often imagined he did finish it and I read the Quixote, all of it, as if Maynard had conceived it. Some nights passed while leafing through chapter 26, never essayed by him, I recognized our friend's style and something of his voice in this exceptional phrase, the river nymphs and the dolorous and humid echo. To compose the Quixote at the beginning of the 17th century was a reasonable undertaking, necessary and perhaps even unavoidable. At the beginning of the 20th, it is almost impossible. It is not in vain that 300 years have gone by filled with exceedingly complex events. Among them, to mention only one, is the Quixote itself. Right. Cervantes's text and Maynard's are verbally identical, but the second is almost infinitely richer. That sentence even of itself, that you're comparing two texts that are word for word the same, but the context of another one makes yeah. it richer. It is a revelation to compare Maynard's Don Quixote with Cervantes's. Cervantes, for example, wrote in part one, chapter nine, quote, truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. Written in the seventh century, written by the late genius Cervantes, this enumeration is a mere rhetorical praise of history. Maynard, on the other hand, writes, truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. History, the mother of truth. The idea is astounding. Maynard, a contemporary of William James, does not define history as an inquiry into reality, but as its origin. History begets reality. Historical truth for him is not what happened. It is what we judge to have happened. The final phrase, etc. We'll leave it at that. I think what, what Maynard, Maynard is really doing an assault on the kind of high modernist um, conceit of textual criticism, of historical uh, scholarship of, of text, the recovery of authorial intent. To translate that into like Jewish studies context yeah. or, or Rimei Torah, it's an assault on, on like Bible or Talmud scholarship. Like, you know, we want to understand what the Torah meant in its context or what the Deuteronomist meant yeah. in its, et cetera, et cetera. 
He's like, that's impossible from the get-go, and it's the least interesting. All learning is impossible. It's the least interesting impossible because you can't become something earlier. But what happens to the text when you read it and it goes through the prism of your experience? And I think what Minard is really, what, what, what Borges yeah. is really unpacking is that when you read Don Quixote or Lahavdil and Elif al when you read Torah, Torah inevitably is new. It's different. It's Akivaized. That's yeah. true population-wise, and it's true individually, and it's true momentarily. Akiva who had the day you had today is different than Akiva who hadn't yet had the day you had today. It is actually kind of uh, scarily relevant to what I did today, which was uh, I had a class on Purim uh, that was the same class on Purim that I had taught to the same kids last year. And I told them why I'm doing this uh, is because, you know, you're not the same person you were last year and you might grow, you might have grown over the past year. And it's fun to come back to Torah after a year and see how you view it differently. I did I not that. say that it was because I didn't want to spend time preparing <laughs> another class. But, you know, uh, you both, gotta, you both gotta, can be true. But yes, uh, both can be true. Uh, I'll share with you. I'll share with you one of the uh, it's uh, the 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 reasons for giving that class are uh, are thick and uh, multivalent and cannot be put into text, much like Shamor Vesachor. Uh, yeah. Anyway. I'll share with you one of my uh, favorite anecdotes that my teacher of David Bigman, Malagubo, often said that uh, once his teacher of Lev Bax at the Yeshiva Gavo in Detroit um, was saying shir in you know Bav Matir or whatever you're saying shir in and there was some like veteran student who had been there like last time he said shir in this and and the student was like you wait but you explained this this Ramban totally differently last time and Rebax was like what I'm allowed to be cholik on the entire world and I can't be cholik on myself like I, you've heard me yeah. cut down, cut down Rabani much greater than Revlev Bax, you know, and you didn't mind yeah. that. There's sometimes and, where like I have to try to remember, okay, which which guy was I to this class last time we learned this? Uh, like, what was my position? Like, what were my assumptions that I ended off with with this class as opposed to this class? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you got to be different people to di different people sometimes. So that uh, that I th now we're really getting into it. I think, and what's yeah. what's really at stake in this Pachad Yitzchak, that for him subtly to be saying that Torah is, you know, Hashem Kiviyachol meant Shabbos create that historically created Shabbos as something cosmic and about has nothing to do with the historical experience of Mitzrayim. It predated that by a long shot. But once it's being commanded to these people, it takes on this texture that, that actually their, their experience is in a sense even prior in a certain way yeah. of slavery, that Shabbos is about yeah. the reason why, why owning class people have to observe Shabbos is to make sure the poor and working class people can observe Shabbos, yeah. which is, of course, the exact opposite of the state of being in America today, where Shabbos is a luxury of the, uh, of yeah. the bourgeois class.
go go uh, to service when you're working in the service industry yeah. as my friend and comrade I've done, it. Derelic, uh, I've um, done it uh i was a mishkiach and uh i was a mishkiach and part of it was also waitering uh yeah thanks yeah i i i, I hear part. that i do want to ask you something though um as someone who ha like is in progressive spaces is in social justice spaces um how do you balance this idea of you know the torah has to be relevant and it expresses my ideas with this self with the like sort of conscious desire to progress it to a certain place yeah so right? I, I i think i wouldn't say it exactly like that i don't think it's that the torah has to be relevant and and conform to your ideas or agree with your ideas right it's that it's that all all wisdom all, all thick wisdom refracts through your experience. right your so, experience is always going to shape your reading now yeah so, so that was uncharitable way of putting it but yeah like so what i mean there's what, yeah go ahead what, what i do what i do mean is that you know what i do teach people is like when when students let's say get we'll get to the political sense in a second but just yeah. the sense of despair that can some and alienation that can happen sometimes with students who get into judaism at a more mature age and they went to some like whack sunday school mm -hmm. that you know just like taught them to do hasbara for israel and like you know yeah. they didn't really teach them hebrew didn't teach them torah didn't you know um didn't trust them to be interested in it and maybe didn't have the capacity to do so but they get to this point and they're interested later on but they feel overwhelmed so i do expose you know teach the great scene of the torah's meeting place of its two protagonists comes barakul and moshe at at the burning bush and the whole literary context of that parak is that both protagonists are fundamentally alienated at the time hashem yeah. is living in in a bush in unincorporated territory achar hamidbar in yehupitzville like and moshe is fatherless familyless homeless wanderer yeah, he's been rejected by everybody like and, i remember a student pointing out that like when he says gary uh like uh, no it, it's not clear what that means it's he he doesn't have any associations at all at right. that point in his life right and the first thing hashem tells him after take off your shoes because yeah. you would never know otherwise that this is holy ground because god lives yeah. in a dump and give and yeah. uh which i know that's your favorite thing i listened to your first episode oh, yeah um, yeah, good times. Um, yeah, So the uh, the first substantive thing Hashem says to Moshe is, uh, But the main thing that Moshe knows about himself is that he doesn't have a father. And so it's like this amazing dramatic <laughs> moment of like, well, who do That's you cool. mean? Do you That's mean cool. my bio father? Do you mean Pharaoh? Do you mean do you mean Yitro? Like who? And then that's cool. Dramatic yeah. continuation. I think you read it with a pause. Now I'm mad at myself. Hey, Abraham, hey, uh, hey, Yaakov. Yeah. And my colleague, Rabbi Eli Confer, points out a lot, like in his teaching, I think a beautiful teaching on the Sidur, that when we stand and open the Amida by saying, 
which is an unusual phrase. It's not found in any other peticha of a, of a bracha. And commentaries on yeah. the sidur, like note that it's, it's problematic. It doesn't follow the rules. But the reason is because it's an intertext. At that moment, we're addressing God in the way God addressed Moshe at the moment of most alienation. At, so to daven properly is the posture of, do I belong here? Do I have a voice? Do I? Right. And that maybe it's my distance that actually makes me ready for an important role here. And I think the structures of how we're supposed to daven being learned from Chana yeah. is also a social outcast. So I think those are some examples of how I would talk about it. In terms of the content, like what's really at stake in the Pachad Yitzchak here? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that the term Talmid Vatik is an important one in that, you know, it's hard to fake the funk and that um, people having, knowing how to read books and read other texts, film, mm -hmm. etc., they know when there's thick, literature versus thin yeah literature. people recognize um an idea that's that's not much of an idea that's just the slapping of a hebrew phrase onto yeah billboard which is useful at, at, on, you're saying you like the cream rises to the top yeah and i and i think people often haven't experienced it but they're hungry for it yeah but, like... but so they need to be invested they need to be in the work of it but i really do believe that that even as beginners there are meanings in torah that all gatekeeping that is done by the so-called torah world all gatekeeping hurts torah and like yeah. limits what torah can be because torah necessarily has authentic and necessary refractions that have to come through the prisons of those who aren't. Yeah. Like what I'm interested in is the implication is that in order to do that, you have to have a level of like unselfconsciousness of you're not, you're trying, you're, you're genuinely trying to interpret the text and you come up with an idea and like, that's your Torah. That's the Torah that comes to you. And it reflects and and it reflects, you know, your perspective. And then, you know, as people who want to create better societies where we are, uh, and you know, you, I, other people may have different ways of doing that. But how do we know when it's, you know, us ref reflecting and refracting something real versus us, you know, putting something there that we want to be there, yeah. right? That maybe shouldn't be there, yeah. And I think, I think we, we can't ever know. This isn't, you know, this isn't the hard sciences. This is the humanities. Yeah, which is, and I think uh, that's Hanukkah uh, ten, and that's why this is, you know, the life of the base medrash in in the broader sense of the term not the narrow sense of the term of people who are allowed in you know because they're deemed toko kabaro or yeah. they dress the part or they yeah you know whatever the case may be but i think um i mean that that's my critique against some of my comrades and friends 
um, in parts of liberal Judaism who I think um, I think don't serve themselves, don't don't serve us, don't serve the movement, don't serve Torah when they highlight alienation. Um, yeah. I what what attracts me to the literary project of the Pachad Yitzchak, and here I think we're we're talking about what it's, that application means, is doing the work of of I'm just going to say translating. Translation is I think a decent way to say it, but uh, yeah, I'll say it that way: translating an idea that you have into Lishnadur Rabbanan. And when you do that, is it convincing to yourself? And yeah. are you doing the work? I mean, something that's been like a, a foundational principle of, of mine and, you know, in the years I was in like regular daily, you know, project making co conversation with Rav Eitan Tucker and Michael Rosenberg and the like Yeshiva Hadar ecosystem and our teacher, Evolution Shalevitz at Malayulboa. I'm not trying to speak for them. Right. I'm not necessarily in as much contact with them or not, like people grow, but I'm just giving you a... a allowing the, the listeners to have a map of history for this. The people I've been in conversation with have had a foundational commitment um, that there can't be a, there cannot be a conflict between um, halacha and morality. That because halacha yeah. is what God wants uh, us as Jews to do. Morality is what God wants us as human beings to do. They, there might be additions, there might be, but there can't be contradictions between them. And if there are, if you perceive a contradiction, that means that you're misunderstanding one or the other or both. Yeah. And what that means is that, what that means in terms of halacha is that you need to be willing to say bold things sometimes. But yeah. to, and to play offense and stop being so like, you know, we, I don't like the language of we need reinterpretations today. No, actually, maybe, Everybody else is getting Torah wrong because they're lazily applying a precedent yeah. and not filtering it through this whatever relevant thing. They're not doing what Moshe did. Had Moshe not done psolacha, as Pachad Yitzchak understands it to be, had Moshe not, un right. had Moshe not revealed that Shabbat is and metaphysically always has been pregnant with the meaning of right. Shabbos is a, fundamentally about the human experience of rejecting slavery. So you're arguing for less emphasis on reinterpretation or and more emphasis on like creativity. On like well, I'm, I'm, what I'm really emphasizing is Parsha knew it. In this way, I think my my gang, my posse and I, in the world of of Lamdanut, have more continuity with certain voices, a mm -hmm. subset of voices in the Haredi world, than we do with our much closer friends in modern Orthodoxy. Yeah, and this is I would say has been like a frustration often. Like, I, you know, I'm obviously, socially speaking, very far from like all of the Haredi world. I don't know it. Yeah. I'm not of it. I'm not, you know, yeah. I don't, I'm not saying this to, to do any romanticizing. And I have like tons of beloved friends and Torah conversants who are in the modern Orthodox world. Um, 
YU and YCT and Maharat and everything. Yeah. But actually, a lot of that world, um, I think, has more, in a certain sense more differences from what me and my posse are trying to do uh, jurisprudentially. And that I think there's a lot of like, I need an exact precedent to show that, you know, yeah. you're like, so you want somebody who doesn't believe in feminism to say that women can have an elite. Well, you're not going to find that because they don't, they don't agree with you. So, but I want people who don't agree because I, yeah. I think there's a fundamental idea that like halacha is, is separate from ideas and prisons. And I think this Pacha Yitzchak is really running against that and being like, Torah always filters through the prisms of our experience. And we should be active refractors. Solacha. Yeah. We have to be actively refracting and not just coming up with our ideas without any connection to Torah and then being like, what, how do I say that Torah? But we have to be integrated people who are you, living Torah everywhere in the fullness yeah. of our lives. Yeah, that's, uh, that hits home for me. I'm very much of, like modern orthodoxy for me, uh, at least ideologically, if not sociologically, is I don't take off my Torah-colored color, glasses. Like, yeah. I, it's not that I'm trying to put things into Torah words. It's that that's the context in which I exist and the context in which I understand ideas um, that's really beautifully said and that's the the aspect of modern orthodoxy that i think i really connect with and identify with and yeah um relate to that um, the ideology is good the sociology it uh it gets complicated but you right. know but some of the ideology that. i think you know like um yeah i'm not like jurisprudentially I don't find the Salvation cartel that interesting jurisprudentially, actually. Um, I think it's like a better dressed up Yishayo, like smartened up Yishayo Leibovich. And it's, I just don't think like Xerata Katu is, Xerata Melech is a very yeah. interesting. So you can use a lot of Latin words and, and footnote for and whatnot, but I just don't think it's that interesting. Um, or reflecting of the way world works. So I'm actually interested in thinking about like a very um, potent and pregnant idea like Bachadietzkak is unpacking here. Yeah. How does that play out? What is it? What where does the rubber really hit the road for that in halacha, in ideas, machshava, in our understanding of what Ben like got Torah reading like I was reading a uh, uh, academic paper about uh, radical egalitarianism in Hasidic thought. And there's um, somebody who was born in like the 1700s who has an idea about uh, Miriam dancing at, uh, at uh, the, uh, at Kriyat Yamsuf. And he goes, you'd have to see it inside. I'm not going to do it justice, but he ends up in a place of like, and the ideal is to abolish gender and for everybody to be equal. Uh, and the question that you have, uh, or like that I have as an outsider to these kind of, uh, you know, left social justice circles is there's a lot of grounding in like, we need to be rational and we need to reject superstition and whatever. And Kabbalah is sort of embarrassing. Hasidus is sort of like our weirdly dressed cousins. Like, but those 
have richer vo uh, religious vocabularies and yeah. have more daring ideas because they're so grounded yeah uh that yeah you're not doing yourself any favors from cutting yourself off from that yeah um, yeah that's i think a good challenge and there's something to it and you know i like like every person you know i have my own intellectual biases and limitations too as so i'll speak for myself personally that i tend to connect with I mean, Hasidic literature has never been like a major focus of mine, but I tend to like connect to Hasidic literature, like the 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 half of Hasidic literature that's like psychology and the half that's like yeah number crunching and Sphero not so much. So like the Sfas Emes and Bratislav, I think have a lot of really yeah. I I have connected to work. Kutsk because the idea of being in a room for twenty years and not having to talk to anybody is incredibly attractive to me. Uh, and just being able to yell, to just being able to be bluntly honest with everybody, and you know that's yeah. that's great. Uh, yeah, it's that like no. In all seriousness, in high school, I got into Kuzgar Kasidis and ended up writing my uh, high school senior thesis on uh, Kuzgar Kasidis and uh, the ideology of early punk rock. Um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it. It was fun to write. Uh, I had a white supremacist help me write it. Uh, so that's the story for another podcast. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, whatever. Uh, if you know really punk rock, you're like the Stooges or MC5 or like mostly the Sex Pistols because that was uh, yeah. the background uh, that the teacher in question who helped me was most familiar with. Uh, anybody who went to MTA knows who I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, yeah, like there's, I think the the general thrust here, I guess, and uh, note that we can end on is uh, there's niches to find in this, you know, vast world of rabbinic Jewish, you know, literature yeah. and yeah. people should be trying to find those and trying to find their place to reflect, to refract what their contribution is yeah. and to find their portion in Torah and uh Yitzchak is a really interesting way to start thinking in those terms yeah I think so um and you know just to like basically like tie together you know the, the last few lines of the Mammar, which I'll just summarize okay he's like so based on everything we've just said then now we understand why Davka, this particular chapter in Kitisa is the one where there's a different right. order because that is the place where the perspective of the receivers is the most important. It's like, oh, this is the chapter of Solacha. This is the chapter of God saying, like, okay, I accept, your, I accept your tshuva. I accept that. And you're, you're I'm, you're going to have the Chagin, you're going to have covenantal life, and I'm going to uh, to be with you, and you get the Chagin. And in that context, Pesach comes first, because it's really highlighting Solacha and like the message of the perspective of the, of the receiver. But largely, the reason Shabbos is Tchilal and Mikre Kodesh is because it's able to hold these multitudes, and we're able to, to have this as an anchor 
to step out of the it's not just that like whatever god's will just like refracts we become you know Torah yeah. is whatever we shape it to be there's also a kind of like a masa brishi like right. that's that's the there. text or the, the tradition anchors the to point kind of interpretation. To, to point towards some other mamarim of in the other mamarim where he talks about the shivrei lucho, the broken tablets and the full ones existing together. I think what he's getting at with the shivrei lucho is that it's not just like the, the basic insights of like postmodernism and deconstructionism are, mm-hmm. are true. They're of course true that the reader is author mm-hmm. as, as he's laying out here. But that's not, it's not this reductionist thing. There's also this miraculous quality that is symbolized by the Shifre Luchot being there that we're kind of anchored by a sensibility, yeah. an original sensibility. Like I'm reminded of, uh, and this is, I think the best piece of advice I've ever seen is uh, his advice to somebody who was, afraid of becoming a halakhic uh, like a, a posek where he says the fact that you're afraid of being a posek means yeah. that you're that you're the right person yeah uh just such a like emotionally yeah. uh, uh fortifying idea yeah. that like turn that fear into the thing that qualifies you and is that, the, is that in one of his letters I yeah the letters. yeah there's a mamar where he developed that too. I wish I could remember which Mahamara it is. Yeah, so, so like the close. idea that like that fear of being wrong or that fear of like not interpreting the text correctly is the thing that anchors you. Yeah. And, but still within that, you have creativity. Yeah, yeah, so, totally. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, so that era of like what Hashem really wants from us which is like manifested in us and are symbolized for us by the Shivri Lucho being in the Aron, we can never, we can never achieve objective authorial intent or truth. Um, but the striving for it actually uh, is itself a filter that helps yeah. us, you know, make sure we're refracting Torah through us rather than just like using which, it. As which a answers tool. like my uh, question before about you know uh, how to balance the desire for progress with the desire to get it right as long as you're afraid of getting it wrong yeah be, uh, like, be reverent and afraid and also understanding that that reverence requires the application of torah where you are and what you know um the world yeah. that you know and including like the person that you are, you are a prism of Torah. Um, this was the mamar that I would always uh, do the first, the first session. And when I did uh, yeah. a in our it's a good one for a first session. And uh, during staff week, our first like Friday Arab Shabbos, Friday afternoon, um, after checking the Eru, we would sit down and do this one as a way to set the stage of what we're trying to accomplish and learning. A lot of people who felt inside and outside, but framing that we are part of a Masoret. And yeah. um, we have to boldly 
be part of the Masora. Claim your spot. That's a boldness and a and a radicalness and and a reverence that are one. And I think that's what this Mama of the Pachad is yeah. really unpacking. That the reader is the author, and that is the most radical and the one of the most foundational ideas of Torah itself. Um, the most important moment of Torah that is like in our liturgy throughout Yom Kippur and all fast mm-hmm. days of a relationship with Hashem despite mistakes and alienation and, and yeah. difficulty. That is a relationship based on solacha, which means not just human labor, but refracting Torah through our, our human labor and our human experience for the sake of birthing Torah as authentic Torah. Yeah. So my sense is, is that if I respond to that, we're just going to continue into the night and nobody will listen to this podcast because it's like a five hour discussion of a mamar of that's like what, uh, like 10, 10, like one page and like, what, what are these people on? Uh, So we're going to stop here. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really awesome. And I think that uh, I, I I hope that listeners uh, will appreciate this as much as I did, because I think I this so went too. to some really cool places. Uh, yeah, and uh, so. check out so Rabbi Arya Bernstein's stuff. Uh, he does good stuff. Uh, do you want to like advertise anything? I don't know. I listen to podcasts where like come to my stand up show or whatever. I don't <laughs> know what the rabbinic equivalent of that yeah, is. Um, if you, uh, I, I wrote a couple of years ago, I wrote essays on uh, Torah of social justice through Parshat Shavua. Um, they're on the Avodah blog. So if you search my name in a Parsha in the Avodah blog, you'll find some stuff there. That's one place you can look. Yeah, check it out. Uh, if you like social justice stuff and even if you don't you should read it because it's good to to read things uh it's good to read things that uh, are a perspective outside your own uh but you know you know that uh okay so i'm gonna wrap it up here thanks a lot, uh, i'm gonna have a great stop night. the recording <laughs>